Before we start the show, I want to thank the thousands of you, the thousands who have read This Book Will Make You Dangerous. Many of you have told me that the book's unique way of exploring fear, confidence, and purpose has had a lasting impact, that it's much easier for you to get clarity and direction about what really matters and what you want to do in this lifetime. It's also amazing to hear that quite a few of you have read it multiple times and even bought copies for friends, so thank you again. Just in case you weren't aware, I created a free companion video course for the book. And in these videos, I walk you through the big takeaways and practices from each chapter. And I even cover some extra stuff that's not included in the book. Information on how to access the course is in newer versions of the book. And if you own an older version of the book and you don't know how to access the course, just hit me up via the contact form at triplinear.com and we'll get you all set up. And one last thing, if you're one of the thousands who have already read the book, please consider leaving an honest review on Amazon so that others can decide if it's right for them. Again, thank you so much for reading. This book will make you dangerous. And now let's start the show. You are listening to the new man beyond the macho jerk and the new age wimp. Your host is men's coach, Trip Lemire. If you were wearing blinders, how would you know? What if your perspective on the world, instead of the world itself, was the thing truly holding you back? And why do some psychedelics have such a profound, lasting impact when combined with certain types of therapy? Dr. Will Vanderveer returns to discuss the pros and cons of psychedelic-assisted therapy, as well as the possibilities for those of us who want to challenge and move beyond our limitations. Well, just give me a sense of your background because the, the psychedelic thing is coming out. It seems really new, but you've been in this field for so long and you've been just, just kind of bring me up to speed on, yeah, your professional background. Yeah. So, um, it's funny I, how fast time passes, you know, I've, I've been in psychedelic, uh, treatment and research now for about 10 years, which might seem like a long time to some people, but there are people out there, um, who I've been lucky enough to know and work with who have been in it for 50, 60 years. So it's, um, it's actually not a new phenomenon. And, uh, Michael Pollan's book, how to change your mind really put things on the map in the current conversation. Um, but if anybody out there who hasn't read that book, I'd highly recommend it. But if you have, then you know that this kind of research was going on in the fifties and sixties, uh, a lot. Uh, there were thousands of research projects going on. That book is fascinating, by the way, I just a great read in general, but also just to help me to understand, I've been skeptical about psychedelic treatments, um, and also been skeptical about certain therapies and, and modalities just from my own experience of things feeling like they weren't working. Uh, we recently had um, Keith Kurlander on on the show, and he talked about how kind of these these modalities or these things can get siloed. And so for me, going into an ayahuasca thing, I came back with more questions and more disruptions than any kind of sense that I did any healing or made any progress. And sometimes with therapy, it felt like, I don't know if I'm getting anywhere. This doesn't really seem to be helping me. It seems like with the way my defenses are, are lined up that I'm just beating up against a, a wall here. I'm not getting anywhere. So... Before we go down that road, 
let's zoom out because you've been a psychiatrist for you you know yes a little yes over to the, 20 years 20 yeah. years okay so there's a there's yeah. a conventional western md approach to this it's not like you've just been hey man i'm up in the hills and i'm dishing out psychedelics to people <laughs> <laughs> okay. right and there's a lot of those out there right there's a lot of backyard folks, shamans there's a lot yeah. of backyard shamans but you're a legit psychiatrist and and, and coming into it from from that perspective um for, for those of us that aren't really clear, like that we might be a candidate for some help. I think, I think a lot of us think like, I've got to be in like some severe crisis. I've got to be a ball on the ground and I can't get up, but it seems like there's more of a spectrum here. And I want to help those that are listening, help them see that there might be other, other possibilities for them. Uh, and that this might be appropriate or where is it appropriate? I think that that might be a better question. So yeah. Who are we talking about when, we think I, 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 you know, we're tolerating certain thoughts. We're tolerating chronic, terrible moods. We're, you know, it's just kind of thinking that, oh, this is normal. This is what it means to be normal. There's plenty of people that are on meds. There's plenty of people that aren't very happy in their life. So I'm just in a normal state. But I got to ask you, what if that's not normal? What are your thoughts uh -huh. on that? Yeah. Well, my own experience has told me that what I thought was normal was actually a pretty beleaguered, pretty beaten down, pretty tight, pretty... Uh, obsessive kind of ruminative state of mind. That was my baseline. And, and, um, and I can go there pretty easily inside of my own mind. And so what I would say is that, um, there are folks on the far end of the spectrum with PTSD, with severe depression, people who maybe have even tried to kill themselves. Um, people who think about suicide a lot, um, psychedelic, sessions can be super helpful for those folks. But I think what we're talking about here is more of the, um, kind of quote unquote, normal frame of the, of the spectrum of human experience where all of us are dealing with a certain frame of assumptions about how life works and what's possible in our lives that can get really blown up, um, in a good way, sometimes in a difficult way at least in the short term with a psychedelic session. So another quote in from the Michael Pollan book is from a guy named Bob Jesse at, at Hopkins. Johns Hopkins has done a lot of psilocybin research and Bob Jesse's uh, famous quote is um, that you can use a psychedelic for the betterment of well people. In other words, uh, he pictured a future reality where you could go to a psychedelic health spa and go and kind of blow the pipes out of this, kind of frame that I'm talking about that all of us are working with. We're all working with a point of view and the point of view inside of the human psychology is basically just a, an accumulation of experiences that we've had that inform us about what is possible and what, how life works. And so, um, one of the reasons why, um, kind of brain hackers and brain optimizers and entrepreneurs, Silicon Valley are, uh, have started, you know, there's all this buzz around microdosing and, and trying to sort of get outside of your own point of view for a while. The reason why, um, I think people like Steve jobs like to use LSD to sort of create, become, get into a more creative or more flow state is because of the effects that these uh, substances have on your point of view. And so what you're talking about with ayahuasca is something that I think a lot of people experience with psychedelics in a more sort of, um, let's say 
less uh, directed or less held or less um, intentional uh, frame by frame approach, which is that you get a state shift, but you don't get a trade shift. Right. So let me let me just press pause there because yeah. there's so many good yeah. stuff I want to unpack there before we get too far in the weeds here. So uh, what I'm hearing is that as we go through life, things happen to us. We start to believe things that shapes the experience that shapes how we view the world. And that in and of itself is how we experience the world. Right. So if I view the world and I have a tendency to look at it glass half empty or I'm in danger or I'm not liked or I'm not enough of this or I'm not enough of that, then that impacts the experience. My day to day experiences. Life sucks. Life's a bitch. And then you die or I'm just tolerating or man, something's going to come along and save me or whatever it is. We're living within you called it the frame. Like that's the way that we're viewing yeah. life and that with certain therapies, with even psychedelics is that they they seem to be able to help re- lift that frame or create some distance on that frame and start to see life, our lives from a different perspective and help us consider that maybe that frame isn't entirely true, that there's another possibility for us instead of it being fixed in stone that, Hey, this is how life is. And, and it always has to be that way. Is that a, a, a way to describe it? hundred percent. Okay. 100%. Okay. And, um, if for your listeners, here's a, here's a metaphor that could be useful to understand it even better, even easier is, you know, one of the things I love is meeting new people. Right. And when I meet a new person, I start kind of vibing what, how do they look at the world? What, what inside of their frame of reference, what's possible for them. And I look and I see how the life that they're living there's certain things that they perceive as possibilities that never crossed my mind as a possibility in my life. And just so off just that, yeah, yeah, right. Just off limits. And so that's a great moment of, of awareness. And for me, that comes with actually a feeling of freedom and like, wow, like I just took the blinders off and there's actually more possibilities here for me great. in my life. Or another recent experience is like for me personally, moving out of a 20 year marriage into a new marriage with a new partner and all of a sudden, all the things that were not, that were off limits are not off limits anymore. Got it. Because my frame is being impacted by my choice of a different person to be with. Got it. And so we don't have to necessarily be in crisis. We might just be in this chronic state where we're feeling flat, feeling trapped, feeling drained. And, and I, I guess there's this resignation that can happen. I'm like, well, this is just kind of how it is. And maybe that's an indicator. Well, do I have to settle for that? Or I could be curious, is there another possibility here? Um, And so maybe it it helps me to understand why I would be curious about some of these things. You also talked about what, before I interrupted you, it was kind of like, well, then what are all these avenues? Why don't I just go do psychedelics? And, you know, but what, from what I've found is that it was lacking some, something there was lacking even being held. Hell, I've done meditation retreats and, like gone up to like something's going on inside me and not been able to get help there too. There was, it was missing this supportive element where I'm in this state of mind. There's a, there's a, an amazing opportunity when you're in that, in that state of mind, but then how to integrate that and have it become a trait, as you said, is missed because there's not that support there. And so psychedelics combined with therapy seems to offer a, a kind of the best of both. Is that what you're saying? Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, it's, um, it's like this frame of reference from our earliest experiences that keeps layering throughout our lives to me is a lot like the Terminator in, in Terminator one, where, 
you know, you have to put that thing like in a vat of acid to. <laughs> it just keeps coming watch, back. Just uh, yeah, it, it just keeps coming back. back. It keeps coming back. <laughs> so I mean, it can get hit by an eighteen wheeler. It can get complete, get the skin pulled off of it in ayahuasca, whatever. But it's going to grow back, and it's going to look a lot like it's going to function almost exactly the same way. So what's cool about the technology of combining therapy with a psychedelic is that you can actually take a trained therapist, psychedelic therapist, and you can put them in there with the intention, the shared intention of the client of like, hey, I need to remodel my frame here. My frame is. Uh, all the things you described, it's not, it's, um, deflated. It's, um, I don't see the possibilities. I'm basically going through, I'm in the hamster wheel. I'm going through the motions of life and I don't feel the joy and the fresh air of new possibilities in my life. And you can go in there and you can actually start opening that up and you can do more. Oftentimes I'm not, you know, there's no panaceas in life, but oftentimes you can get a lot more done in a psychedelic therapy session than you could do in the ordinary therapy session prime specifically because of the effect that a psychedelic has on this frame in while you're on the psychedelic. And there's this beautiful body of research out of the Imperial college in London the guy's name is Robin card Harris. If you, your listeners want to go look at his, his research, it's fascinating where they put people on MRI machines and they look at the neurological correlate of this frame, which is called the default mode network. So we could talk a little bit about that. It's really fascinating um, to see like the world of psychology and technology coming together to understand what's going on here. My understanding, and correct me if I'm wrong, is that there, our brains are wired in such a way to create a sense of I, like this is me, yeah. this is my story. And in my waking hours and even pretty much during my dreaming hours, it's about me. I'm the main character and I am, I need to be protecting me. I need to be, it's really is a defense, but it is like, I I've got to be projecting a certain image and I got to be, I got to be safe. And that that's the default. That's the largely the, the job of the default mode network and trying to do therapy, trying to do something where we're going to go in there. And, and even if we're coming from a place of trying to help, it still feels like a threat to that sense of self. And it's like, nope, I'm going to pump the brakes. And for me, that's always why some therapies never really worked is because trying to go in the front door, ain't nobody coming in there, baby. And so it was the, the psychedelics relax that, and then we can get in and have another conversation. Um, and, and then all those other possibilities, those other frames, those other perspectives are available to us. Is that, is that essentially what's happening? Exactly. I mean, if, if, and as a meditator myself too, I can relate to what you're saying about lots of meditation. When you sit for a while in meditation and you, and, and these ego, these defenses that you're talking about, they kind of drop and you look and you see what's behind those defenses. There's nothing there, <laughs> but the, the perception is that who I am, my, I, all my, all my defenses, all of my stories, all of my frames is actually a solid thing. And that's the fantasy that we live in all day long. And we're operating, I'm operating my life all day long. I'm well, I'm well, I'm well. And I think it's solid. So the will that I am is distorted in these ways based on the experiences I've had in my life. Mm -hmm. the, the, the limitations on the possibilities that I can see in who I am is this frame, the water that the fish swims in. And so on the psychedelic, those, those defenses melt a little bit. They slow down the default mode network opens up and you, you can actually have more of a perspective 
when I was working in MDMA research, I heard people say this all the time who are participating in our studies is like, they would use a metaphor of like, Oh, I, I can, I'm actually stepping up and I can see above the trees now mm -hmm. instead of being lost in the forest. Right. And so then from that perspective, you can see possibilities. And then the hard work begins. It's like the meditation teacher who says the real retreat starts when the meditation retreat ends. Yeah. Now you go in the world and now you need to make that possibility a reality. I'm glad you brought that up because I, I can, I've sensed that there's, you know, like you use the word panacea, right? Oh, psychedelics are here and now everything's, you're set and yeah. everything's good. And it's not that way. I, would, I don't want to be really clear that it's not that way. Um, but what it does is it, it makes, well, how does it make conventional therapy, you know, those tools that you've been using in, in more conventional therapy sessions, is it make them more effective? What are you, what are you learning as you've been doing so much therapy over the years and now you're able to do it with, uh, with, uh, psychedelics. What's the difference? So there are certain therapies, um, like you and I have talked a lot about, um, Dick Schwartz and parts work that internal family systems, which is incredibly beautiful in and of itself, even without psychedelics, but it blends, it, it, it fits really well with the psychedelic therapy um, approach because it's so intuitive and not even very cognitive. Then there are other kinds of therapies that are harder. I think we're going to find out are difficult to combine with psychedelics. Um, Stan Groth, who is sort of the godfather of LSD psychotherapy and LSD psychotherapy research in his book, um, talks about his journey where he trained in what people trained in back then, which was psychoanalysis. And then he tried to sit like a Freudian behind the couch while he put people on LSD and sort of tried to do that kind of therapy. And it was just a complete Doesn't disaster. <laughs> yeah. And so he started innovating and he started coming up with these new ways of doing things. And so there are kinds of therapies that are very highly effective, like cognitive behavioral therapy, uh, dialectic behavioral, different kinds of therapies that are empirically proven and very effective for certain things that I don't think are going to play very well with psychedelics. Um, but there are other forms of therapy, um, body centered therapies, uh, somatic experiencing trauma release therapies that, um, lend themselves better to psychedelics because you don't need that default. You don't need a cognitive apparatus to gain traction with these particular therapies that work better with psychedelics. Okay. Well, what about the guy out there? that's like, you know what? I can get access to this stuff. I'll just heal myself. I can just go on my own retreat. I don't need, uh, you know, whatever. I don't need to make this official. Right. I can just go and, and trip. So there's like, okay, there's, we're seeing where this can help conventional therapy where conventional therapy has actually failed a lot of guys, whether they, they just haven't yeah. applied themselves or they've been so armored, like in my case where it's just not going to work. And then there's those that are like, I'm just going to go do psychedelics on my own and I'll heal myself. Or I'll, I'll yeah. listen to this shaman over here and I'll be healed by that thing. So where does that fall short? Why doesn't that work? Or why doesn't that necessarily hit the nail on the head if we're looking for that, that type of healing, I should say? So I would say that there's two ways that can go wrong. Um, the first one is kind of the Einstein quote of, you know, the, the level of consciousness that created the problem can't fix the problem. <laughs> <laughs> so if you're out in the desert and you're on LSD and, um, you have this brilliant insight that you can't wait to bring home. Um, sometimes that's, I don't want to rain on everyone's parade and say that's always a bad thing because it's not always a bad thing. Um, but I'm going to change my name and get married at Burning Man. Like, I, 
like, I'm going to get this cool tattoo on my forehead. Uh, it's the best idea ever. Yeah. Um, what tends to happen is that the the shred of 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 self or the shred of ego, the shred of the frame that's perceiving the brilliance of the insight, <laughs> is still the frame that's seeing that. Okay, so um, what's cool about having a psychedelic therapist, by contrast, who's in there is like they can actually give you that reality check of like okay, help me understand that better. You know, let's get deeper into that. Let's, let's, let's take this to the next level. And so there's so, a bit of a grounding agent there instead of, yeah, totally. everything's awesome and amazing all totally. the time. Okay. Exactly. And so what, what can happen and, and, you know, Keith, you mentioned talks about this a lot in psychedelic integration is people who have had a psychedelic experience oftentimes are very inflated about it. They're, they're kind of euphoric about the insight that they got, but they're not grounded in it. And so what, what do you mean? How can you explain that better? Yeah. So like you were saying, the fantasy that, um, psychedelics, now that psychedelics are here, we're all good and everything's going to be great. Well, there is a goodness to them, but there's also all kinds of risks to them, all kinds of problems with them. Um, and what can happen when people go into a psychedelic experience, especially by themselves is, they can get very euphoric. They can, so they can split into sort of the positive pole of like, this is the best. I'm all, I'm good now. I'm, I've got my shit together. And then it's really disturbing when you come down and this frame comes, you know, recongeals like Terminator and you're I'm still, still the same. Guy. I'm still me. Yeah. And it can be very devastating. The other way that it can be a problem to do it yourself out in the desert is, Stan Groff called psychedelics non-specific amplifiers. Okay, so when when the default mode network melts down, and what's you know we talk about ego defenses, they're there for a reason. They're defending us from remembering negative things that happened and how paralyzed we felt, how ashamed we felt, how collapsed we felt when something happened in our lives. You know, whether it was the death of a parent or an assault or a shaming in the locker room or whatever the thing was that happened. And so on the psychedelic, you know, that can bloom and it can open up. The lid comes an, off of that box and, and you can have that off. experience. And oftentimes it comes in a very somatic experience. It comes in like nausea or it comes in panic or it comes in paranoia or something. And that moment is so rich as an opportunity in therapy if you have the right guide with you to support you in that. But one of the things that we're finding in our clinic where we do ketamine therapy with a lot of people is, you know, we're, we're treating a lot of refugees from clinics where they're getting ketamine without any guidance or without any therapy at all. And so the ketamine is opening up these negative things that they've been through in their lives, but nobody's even preparing them for that experience and they're not being held in it. So it's almost like a re-traumatization. Yeah. Um, so it's, you gotta be, um, you gotta be careful with these things because you, what's left of you in that moment to try to help you get through that can be pretty dicey. I, 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 you know, life can be scary enough as it is. And then to think, I've got to be scared of myself too. Like I have to keep the lid on myself as well, that I'm not someone that I can trust even in my most quiet moments or my most open and transparent moments. So there's this, I just, you know, the lid goes on the pot and the pressure builds. Uh, and so the, I, I just see this opportunity as 
what if I didn't have to be afraid of myself of when I'm alone? I know guys that can't be alone, can't go anywhere without the radio on, can't go anywhere without looking at a phone. Like they, they just can't be alone with their thoughts because who knows what's going to come up. And so, you know, as we're speaking here, I'm just imagining is like, what if there was this sense of peace? Like I can be with myself, even if some of those things that have been really uncomfortable or, you know, I've, I've, I've made peace with them, or at least I know what to expect that they come up and I've been able to work with them. I've worked with a professional to work with them. seems like there's just greater access to myself instead of my world getting smaller and smaller and smaller. Exactly. Exactly. That, that self-domination, that, um, tightening the lid down further and further and, and further distancing the different parts of ourselves, right. Is one way to look at it is like having this top down kind of discipline and punish kind of fuck you. I'm not going to listen to what's vulnerable, what's shameful, what's scary, what I can't admit into my consciousness. That time that I felt like a little boy in a world of men or whatever the story is, it just gets worse and worse and worse until we can find a way to reassociate these parts of ourselves yeah. and, and then find a way to actually care for and then see value in the different parts of ourselves and what they're carrying, what they're bringing to us. Yeah. And I think to put it in maybe more street language, like for me, that process was the sense that I had to outrun a train or I had a bear that was coming after me and I had to stay busy. I had to stay distracted. Always had to be with somebody. Always had, couldn't be without a girlfriend, like whatever those things were. It was like, I got to keep filling this up because I cannot afford to be alone because that bear or that train is going to catch up with me. And that's a, it's a terrifying place to, to, to believe that there's, you know, like it's not safe to be alone. And then to come on the other side of that and be like, Oh man, actually it's okay for me to be alone. I, I'm no longer trying to outrun that particular, that specific train. There's other trains, yeah. <laughs> but, <laughs> right. but, 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 uh, but to find that, you know, that's what I want for, for folks out there is to, is to be able to find that and be able to re- relax those trains or, or to come to, you know, come to grips with that bear. Let, let's talk a bit about some of these substances because you know, unfortunately, like you said, since the fifties or really since the sixties, a lot of them gotten a bad rap. There's been an association. There's a story around some of this stuff. So ketamine is legal. Is that correct? Correct. But it's highly controlled. So in order for you to practice, you can only practice it in your own building, right? In Denver or how does, how does this work? How do, cause it seems like some of these are schedule one. It's like really bad news if you've got it in your possession. So how does this work and how does it, how does it stay legal and above board for you? Right. So just as a very basic primer for your listeners, um, when doctors write prescriptions, there are different schedules that the DEA keeps drugs on. So the most restrictive is called Schedule 1, which means that the the substance is illegal um, as defined by um, high abuse potential, dangerous, and Part B is no medical application. So that's schedule one. Things on schedule one are things like heroin, cocaine, all the psychedelics except for ketamine, uh, MDMA, schedule one. So schedule one substance means you're going to get in big trouble if you are caught with it. For God's sakes, if you're selling it, it's even worse, that kind of thing. Now, when we talk about prescriptions, we're talking about schedule two, schedule three, schedule four, and schedule five. Um, Stimulants like treatments for ADHD, like Ritalin, that's Schedule 2, very tightly controlled. Um, The next schedule down is that is Schedule 3, which is ketamine, uh, Valium, um, things that definitely have a potential for um, 
abuse, but they also do have a medical use and they're used widely in medicine for very specific concerns and problems. So ketamine was approved as a anesthetic and has been on the market since I think it was 1970. And it's used uh, in pediatric emergency rooms to sew up uh, cuts that children get from falling down or to set a bone from a bone fracture in a child. So it's considered very safe. Um, but it does have an underground use, um, like a lot of, like, you know, you could also go out and buy Xanax or, or, uh, opiates mm -hmm. on the dark web if you wanted to. Um, but in terms of its use in psychiatry, really it was about 20 years ago that serendipitously somebody figured out that it worked for depression. It, it looked like it did. And then there's been a huge body of research to support its use for uh, depression in the last 20 years. So, um, to your question about using it in lo specific locations, because it's on schedule three, uh, you can prescribe, you can write a prescription that someone could go out and fill and take home. And there are some ketamine, uh, clinics that send ketamine to people's houses for people to take ketamine in their own home without a facilitator on site, which is something that I feel based, you know, and we've already covered this topic, like it's probably not the best, uh, setting for people to use ketamine in. So ketamine, um, comes in different forms. Uh, the most highly researched form is intravenous ketamine for depression and PTSD. So that's how we do it is following the research and having, hooking people up to a ketamine IV in the clinic, working with a therapist, um, going deep and trying to get not just a state change, but a trait change over time. Okay. And so somebody comes to your office and I mean, is this a, a typical thing where they're going to work with you? I know the answer to this, but do they work with you for weeks and months and years on end? Like, like some therapists do, or, or how is ketamine assisted therapy different? Ketamine assisted therapy in the way that we do it, and there's different ways to do it, just like any therapy, there can be different ways to do it. But the way we do it is we do it as an intensive for two or three weeks where we just hit it really hard. And, um, somebody comes in two to three times a week for ketamine therapy. And they also have a number of sessions without ketamine to really dial in these changes of the new possibilities that you see to actually make them real. Uh, so it's a, it's a short term kind of, uh, interventional model. And people continue to sort of process and integrate and do their long-term changes over time um, after the intensive. But generally, they do that either on their own or with uh, a therapist uh, back back where they came from. So there's this yeah. intense period, a couple of sessions where there's, or at least a couple of sessions where there's this state change. That becomes the ground, you know, that becomes the, the foundation for, hey, here's the, a, a new frame or a different frame. And then the work then, like you said, is now we really start the work is integrating that frame into our day-to-day -day lives. Not just, oh, we had a wonderful experience up on the mountain and then we come down the mountain and, you know, I'm back to laundry and kids and stuff. But that, that state change or that perspective shift then becomes the basis for this new work. And instead of just kicking somebody out on the street, like, is, can you describe a bit about that process? And, and what is the person that's gone through that process? Are, are you referring back to the, to the experience? How does that work? Yeah, great, great question. So it varies from person to person, but in general, what happens is uh, the person uh, comes in, um, 
obviously there's a medical screening process to make sure it's all safe and you know the right thing for that person. It's not not the right thing for everybody, but once we go through that, we get into the ketamine work, um, taking a deep dive with the intention of okay, let's look at what's driving my frame, my my perspective, my personality, who I am, um, and oftentimes imagery comes in the psychedelic session. Um, there could be physical processing of releasing, uh, bracing or tension in the body that is sort of, a the body's version of this frame that we're talking about psychologically. Um, oftentimes copious notes are the result of a session like that. Oh, wow. This is connected to that. And this is connected to that. Um, and then those notes become the basis of a reference point for this new possibility of opening up and um leading uh ourselves in the world uh from a more empowered less defensive more open uh frame of mind so there's a bit of a coaching process on the other side let's align exactly. our actions with the new perspective that you gained in that process so it's not necessarily that well i mean is there any rewiring that happens because I've, I've read about neuroplasticity i've read about how the brain can literally change uh, in some of these experiences, does that happen or is it really about just the integration? Right. So it's interesting with ketamine, we have very specific information about that. So not so much yet anyway, with other psychedelics, you know, like psilocybin or LSD or, or MDMA. But what we do know is with ketamine, that there's very specific chemical effects that occur that do um, really enhance neuroplasticity, at least for a period of time. And let me just say neuroplasticity is when the brain actually changes. So it's, it's, it's one thing for, I, I go watch a movie and I was impacted by the movie, but it didn't change my brain. It's not rewiring right. the brain in some way that neuroplasticity means that I did something and my brain is now wired a little differently. The synapses are in different places or however you would describe it. Yeah. So one of the big impacts of ketamine is this hormone called brain derived neurotropic factor BDNF. BDNF is like fertilizer for um, developing more connectivity between neurons. So in chronic and long-term problems with uh, a really intense case of depression or PTSD, you look at, you take slices of the brain, you see that the, there's dendritic pruning. So there's, there's a pulling back or a paucity, uh, there's a deep, big decrease in the amount of connectivity in the brain. So if you think about connectivity, it's like looking at, um, a map where there's, you know, limitless ways to get from point A to point B versus a map where there's only one highway to get from A to B and there's no alternative routes. So if you've ever been stuck in a traffic jam and you wanted an alternative route and you didn't have one, then you know what it's like to have depression or PTSD where the only, you know, somebody looked at me a particular way, I'm a bad person. That's the only possibility. Right. The only possibility, right. as opposed to the alternative route is maybe that person's having a bad day. Maybe that person, um, their grandma has COVID. Uh, maybe they didn't get the job that they applied to this morning. You know, maybe it's, maybe not, it's about not about me. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So, so, so brain derived neurotrophic factor, um, is like miracle grow for the, the neurons. It, 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 it makes your neurons there's a whole cascade of chemical signals that take the construction materials to the synapse, um, to the ends of these, um, connections between neurons and build new connections. Okay. So 
having a lot of connectivity in your brain is really helpful because it leads to these possibilities. It supports the psychotherapy and the integration by building roads that you can now, the, the saying in neurology is neurons that fire together, wire together. So having, you have to use that new alternative route for that to stick. Got it. Well, I'm glad you brought that up because it's not, it's not a, uh, I, t- I, I did this thing and I'm fixed, which I think this is some starting to get associated with psychedelic stuff or, or anything, right? Oh, I'm on keto. I'm fixed, right? <laughs> it's this permanent solution and I've arrived and I'm done and that kind of thing. So it's not so much that I did this thing and now I'm fixed, but what it does is if I go in there and the default mode network relaxes a bit, the opportunity for change and growth with, you know, my brain relaxes, it goes into a certain state, but then it can also be wired differently with what's happening during the session, but also then it's supported afterwards. And that can create more of a solid, steady shift. Exactly. Okay. It's like, you know, another good metaphor that I like for me is, um, if, if I went out in my I don't actually have a garden, but if I did, <laughs> I went out in the garden and I just put miracle grow everywhere. Well, everything would grow, right? The weeds would grow. Uh, the thistle back there would grow the, all of the crap that I don't want to deal with back there would grow. Um, and so just putting fertilizer on your thing is not going to create the garden that you want. You have to actually, so you, you need, you need enough growth happening which is really challenging for people with chronic depression or PTSD, but then you actually have to go out there and you have to pull out the weeds. Mm. You have to catch yourself in the traffic jam and say, here I am again. What's the alternative route right now? Mm -hmm. Oh, right. This is where I go into the story. It's all about me, but I don't have to take that route anymore. And all of a sudden there's a little spark that goes down the right pathway that's not about me anymore. And you just did one rep of setting those two neurons to connect to each other. Yeah. And you have to keep getting those reps. You know, that's why you do three sets of 15 reps in the gym. You don't go and do one yes. and then go home. Yes. I love that. This is where it kind of, it comes back to the need for, or why this is effective, right? If my frame is limiting my ability to see these other things, and even though I can cognitively get it, I could read the books I can listen to the the podcast and I can, you know, I can be really into it, but it's just not happening. Then, okay, this process shifts things, gets, gets my brain into a different state, starts to, oh, I can start to see outside of this frame, but now I've still got to do the work afterwards. And so there's no quick fix here. There's no free ride. You still got to do the work, but this does, and it helps me understand why it works so much why there at least there's a bit more speed to it is that we don't have to chisel through all these blocks of granite to get to the part of the brain that, that actually wants to do this work. It's not, it's not stuck in protecting. Exactly. Exactly. Okay. Yeah. 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 Now, it doesn't do the heavy lifting for you, but it will help you do that lifting. Yeah. Great. Great. I'm glad to say that. I'm glad to hear you say that too. Cause again, it's one of those things where people are like, Oh, this is all I got to do is this thing. And then I'm, I'm done. And it's like, no, you still got to do the work. It just makes it a lot, um, a lot easier there. Um, you talked a bit about, about the risk. I, I mean, I, when I've talked to some of my clients about this, it's this kind of black box. Well, what happens in the session? What am I going to experience? Maybe I'm better off in my day to day shit. At least I know what I'm tolerating versus that, <laughs> 
hour or two where I mean, am I going to be in pure hell? Am I going to be running around? You know, like what are those things? So I always find that kind of funny, but nonetheless, I always feel a little trepidation before I, I were, I ingest one of these uh, compounds. So can you tell us a little bit about that? Cause again, we'd rather pick the devil we know uh, if it, if it means yeah. we, we can stay out of that. So yeah. What is that process? What might somebody experience uh, is it hours and days? We've heard of these bad trips where they're, they're on it for 24 hours and they're, you know, falling off buildings mm-hmm. or whatever, or yeah. Sure. What happens in that ketamine thing that would, would, would have us say, uh, uh-uh, that's not for me. Yeah. Right on. Well, first of all, ketamine, um, can definitely produce difficult experiences. I mean, there's no question about that. All psychedelics can do that. Uh, there are ways to reduce the possibility of having a really negative experience, a really difficult experience. What's negative? Uh, I'm going to be upset. I'm going to be sad. I'm going to be scared. What, what is the, it's a great question. And the question also you could say is who's asking, right? What, <laughs> what part of our, the guy protecting me. All of them, right? <laughs> <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so the tendency to label things as positive or negative is part of our ego as, as you and I speak the same language here. It's so funny how the mind works because we always have an expectation about what we're going to experience. Even if we have no clue what we're going to experience, we have an expectation. And even if we consciously say, I don't have any expectations, you still have expectations that are unconscious. And those expectations are not going to be met because what you're going to encounter is going to be different. I guarantee you, it's, you know, cause you don't, unless you have a crystal ball, you don't know what you're going to experience. Mm-hmm. So having said all that, um, I think there's a lot to be said about preparation for a, a psychedelic experience coming in this frame that we're talking about of, look, you might have challenges here, but we're going to be here to support you. And the idea is that a difficult experience is not a negative experience. It's an experience that might take a little extra effort to integrate, but it's like, if you went in the gym and you felt really sore afterward, you'd probably be psyched because you know that you worked out hard. Mm -hmm. If I went to the gym and I worked out hard and I, and the next day I didn't feel anything, I might think, well, damn, I should have done a lot more. Right. So it's not to say that we should be trying to have a difficult experience, but if something came up for me that are, you know, for my patients that was completely out of the blue, like, you know, I've had people remembering with vivid detail, like the sexual abuse that they experienced when they were four and memory that was completely and totally unknown to them, a hundred percent unknown to them. And that's a really difficult experience. Mm -hmm. That doesn't happen often, which is good. But when it does, it's like, Oh, now we understand why you've been depressed for 25 years. Right. Cause you've been trying to keep a lid on that. Right. And you didn't even know it but how smart you were at four to put a lid on that. Cause you didn't have the support that you needed to digest that experience or go through a healing process. Right. So the, what I'm getting here is that good, bad, isn't necessarily, those aren't necessarily right words. It might be uncomfortable, but it doesn't, it might be the right thing. Uh, exactly. it, it might be the thing, exactly what you need. Uh, but it doesn't, it's not to be masochistic and to, like to punish oneself at all. It's just yeah. might be the, the exact thing you need. It might be really uncomfortable doesn't mean it's wrong. Exactly. What, what I've seen, which is really cool in in terms of seeing people on the other side of healing, um, big trauma, for example, is that there's a perspective that people do get to if they do enough work of healing 
where they look back at that awful thing that happened and it could be really fucking awful. Like it could be like a rape or it could be like watching your friend die in your arms kind of thing. And you look and you look back at that and you're like, I would not choose a different reality where that didn't happen to me because that experience made me the person I am today. And I fucking love who I am today. That kind of gratitude for really difficult experiences does happen to people. Mm -hmm. You can get to that place, but in order to get there, it's hard work. Yeah. You know, sometimes you have to work hard to get there. Yeah. Coming back to like, we can find peace in that. There's a reality that this happened instead of fighting the reality that this is in exactly. us. And f- fighting that reality means our world gets really narrow. Oh, don't go down that road. Don't open that right. door. Don't look in that window. Just keep going along. Yeah. And that's where the depression and everything feeling small comes from. But when I can be at peace with it, when I'm, I can be of acceptance of it, then there is a sense of peace. Like, yeah, that did happen. And I'm still okay. I've worked through this yeah. and I might yeah. still have my ups and downs with it, but I, it, it's manageable. It's workable. It's not something that I have to continuously avoid and outrun. Right. And that experience gave me, uh, strength. It gave me resilience. It gave me knowledge. It gave me understanding that I actually wouldn't have if I hadn't lived through that. Mm-hmm. So it, it enriched me in certain ways. Okay. Um, I might not wish that on my loved ones or anybody to go have to go through that, but I can see also the value. So you, it's a, it's a balanced perspective. Got it. Yeah. Yeah. And so it, it, when, when somebody's under the influence of ketamine, how, how long is that influence take? Cause sometimes with other yeah. compounds, it's hours. Uh, what, what's right. it like with ketamine? Right. So ketamine is very quick. So one of the things you can do with ketamine is you can control it by administering it IV. So with an IV, you can speed it up, you can slow it down, you can turn it off. So that's something that's a really interesting feature with ketamine. It's really different from like anything else, right? I mean, people take mushrooms, it's going to be four to six hours, maybe longer. Um, You take LSD, it's going to be 12 hours. Um, There's no LSD IR, right? There's no immediate release, uh, three hour LSD. There's no escape hatch. (laughs) (laughs) You're done with the medicine before the medicine's done with you, as they say. Um, but with ketamine, it's, um, it's the infusions are done over 40 minutes and the sessions are an hour of the ketamine experience. And then a a following hour of integration work, therapy work. So we do a two hour session typically. Okay. That's great. So it makes it a lot more manageable than some of these other compounds. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Again, it just feels a lot more doable. feels like a lot more manageable. Again, checking off the boxes where there's this where's the uncertainty and I'm unwilling to go there. You know, it's like, okay, 40 minutes, maybe I could do that. The bits of research that I hear about with MDMA, with what's happening with depression, how the FDA is under my impression is like really pushing for this because of the numbers. Can you tell us in a nutshell what's happening there? Cause it's really exciting uh, compared to yeah. what we've been, you know, basically the only game in town is, you know, the, the meds that are, that are on the market, which don't really treat this, don't really treat depression. This is transforming people and they, and they are able to have a, a much different life afterwards. So yeah, tell us a little bit about that. Well, I think the sad reality of, you know, from say 1980 to kind of now is that antidepressants have been antidepressant medications like Prozac, Zoloft, Paxil, et cetera. Um, things I was, I was taught how to prescribe, you know, in my training, uh, 
have basically functioned for a lot of people as a suppressor of their symptoms. So the problem is that they also suppress a lot of other things like libido, like uh, desire, like fun, like joy. And so um, oftentimes people feel really flat on those drugs and they might feel less depressed. And there are cases where they work really well for people and that's great. But the problem is that I found pretty early in my career that people tend, there's too many people who don't respond to them or who have severe side effects from them. But as you pointed out, they don't get to the root cause. And that's really the biggest problem as far as I'm concerned. Okay. So what we're hoping for with the psychedelic medicine revolution is that there will be more people who can actually have psychedelic therapy, who can get to the root causes in their psychology of what's driving them to be depressed, what's driving them to have uh, flashbacks or you know, anxiety attacks or insomnia, some of the really severe problems. I'm holding forward the hope, and I think I'm not alone in this, that in psychiatry, we can start actually addressing the root causes of problems rather than just, you know, suppressing people. And I guess in some cases, you could argue that suppressing symptoms is better than nothing. Um, but living life in a suppressed way is, is just really sad. Um, mm -hmm. for people that have to go through that. So it's really about getting to the bottom of it and, and then trying to use a chemical intervention in a more precise and more surgical kind of way where we're doing it a few times, but we're not having somebody have to take something every day that, um, you know, kind of suppresses their, their life. Yeah. And where is this, you know, the days of the wild west, the fifties and sixties, uh, are in the past. This is much more stream, much more conventional these days, even if pe folks aren't aware of it. What is, where are the studies and, and kind of how, what, oh, yeah. what, what is the path of integration? Where, what's the status of that right now where it's, it is going to be legal uh, and it will be something offered more and more regularly to people. Right on, right on. So ketamine um, is already available and it's, it's in wide use. Um, there are ketamine centers probably in pretty much every city. Uh, so that's already available for people. Um, I will say just buyer beware that there are not as many ketamine psychotherapy centers as there are ketamine infusion centers. Ketamine infusion centers tend not to have a, a therapist or even a mental health professional on staff. And so people are having, like I said before, these kind of evocative experiences without enough support. But as far as FDA and how those trials are going, um, I spoke with Rick Doblin at MAPS um, pretty recently, and they're making really good progress through their phase three studies. Um, the timeline is still about a year out, it sounds like, for FDA to be able to look at all the data and decide if they're going to approve that or not. It's going to be an interesting process because FDA has never had, they've never faced the challenge before of looking at a therapy combined with a drug and whether to approve that or not. Okay. They've only looked at chemicals per se or, um, yeah, they've only looked at chemicals per se. So it's like, how do they look at MDMA per se, knowing that MDMA per se is not going to do anything because mm -hmm. it, it hasn't been studied, right? you know, right. because all of these studies are the therapy with the MDMA. So they're going to have to deal with that. Right. That'll be about a year from now. And then on psilocybin is I've, my understanding is that they're organizing a phase three study 
that probably would take a year or two to complete. So it's a little bit behind MDMA, but not far behind for FDA to take a look at that data. Okay. So, um, but nothing's guaranteed and things in, in phase three sometimes don't perform well compared to earlier studies. So okay. we'll see. Okay. I, I think it's just fascinating that it's in phase three that, yeah. uh, you know, if you just told me this 10 years ago, I was like, really? What? I know. So Crazy. The, 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 I, I, I find it hopeful, you know, that, that, that this conversation is being had, that we're looking at things that actually are attempting to get to the root of it and that there's an integration of, you know, working with somebody and not just dumping a pill or, you know, dumping a substance into somebody's body and hoping that that does it too. I, I, there's a, it's a high level of complexity, a lot of things that can be, you know, that are hard to regulate in that, but I love that they're, they're trying. I think, I think it's fantastic. It's very hopeful. It's an exciting time to be involved. So yeah. hopefully we'll get some good results and be able to move forward together. Okay. So if somebody's listened to this, I've sent quite a few guys your way. Uh, so if somebody's listened to this and they want to learn more, what's the best way for them to, to, uh, get in touch with you? Yeah. I mean, um, your folks can just reach out to our center. Um, and the way to do that is just info at psychiatrycenters.com. Okay. And, um, you know, they can reference your podcast and, and we'll, we'll get them connected. Okay. Sounds yeah. good. Uh, psychiatrycenters.com. Right? Yeah. Okay. Yep. Psychiatry centers with an S at the end.com. Great. Nice. Excellent. It's always fun to talk to you and, and thanks so much for having me on the show. Yeah, it was great. I appreciate you coming in. I've been wanting to talk to you about this on the show and it, it seems like we needed to get to a place where things were a little more mature and, and I didn't want to get out too far ahead of it and then, you know, have the road pulled out, but it, it's feeling it, it, you know, all the data is showing up. It seems really, really good. All, all the things that are happening. So just wish this was around 20, 25 years ago. It could have really, <laughs> could have really been helpful. Right on. If these interviews are helping you, please leave a positive review on whatever podcast app you use so that others can discover the show more easily.